a one-eyed king from the foundation, and the house of cards falls. But none can see where each card may land. The one-eyed king has gone, vanished, dead. And another king is lost in Flea Bottom, where he hides so as not to be taken advantage of. Two queens are nested among dragons in castles great, and all about are knaves and fools who fight for advantage. The houses, both green and black, each will attempt to build anew, competing to build the highest and to make the greatest structure that any have ever seen. But how many cards are needed to stand? And how many will the flames consume? This is a watch party of ice and fire. We are your hosts, Solar, who will be joining us a little later. Constance. Good evening, my friends. Uzma. Greetings, lords and ladies. Morgan. Salutations. And myself, Sam. In this podcast, we'll be talking everything and anything Award of Ice and Fire. In this episode, we are talking about the penultimate episode of House of the Dragon, The Green Council. In this episode, a little bird tells Talia, who then tells Alicent King Viserys is dead. Talia also lights a few candles that look to be a message to someone outside the Red Keep. The small council convenes, and Alicent, Harold Westerling, and Lyman Beesbury learn there was a plan to place Aegon on the throne and kill Rhaenyra and Daemon all along. Lyman protests only to be murdered by Sir Not-So-Noble Now, and Lord Commander Howard we- Harold Westerling almost takes his head off before hanging up his cloak. Allison and Otto find Aegon missing, and the search is on. Team Sir Otto, or Team Otto, Sir Eric, and Sir Eric Cargyle versus Team <laughs> Alicent, Sir Not-So-Noble Now, and Aemon Targaryen. Rainey's awakes to find out she's locked in her room and as others are taken prisoner in an effort to keep things quiet, which will totally work. Team Allison learns Aegon likes to spend his time in Flea Bottom. As they make their way there, Aemon shares his desire to rule the realm over his brother. Team Otto makes their way to the child fighting pits in Flea Bottom, where the children's teeth and nails are sharpened to fight in one of the darkest bits of lore we've ever gotten to see. On top of that, we find out Aegon not only has some bastards about, but they also fight in these pits. Sir Eric and Eric fight about Aegon before being approached by someone claiming the White Worm knows where Aegon is. Back at the castle, Otto is demanding loyalty from houses who once swore oaths to Rhaenyra. Lord Caswell feigns his loyalty and later attempts to leave King's Landing, only to be arrested and hanged with the help of Laris Strong. Allison informs Rainey's about the situation and attempts to support her or t- attempts to get her support in a fantastic scene. Team Allison sees Otto talking to Missaria, aka the White Worm, who already knows about the king's death. She informs Otto where Aegon is in exchange. She wants the crown to step in and do something about the treatment of the children. Team Otto find Aegon only to be confronted by Team Allison. And Eric refuses to take part in the fight, so Team Alicent takes the victory. Alicent puts Otto in his place only to see Laris waiting in her chambers. In exchange for the information about the webs, the web of spies in the Red Keep and payment for handling this situation, Alicent shows him her feet. Yes, that actually did happen. 
Sir Eric says, fuck this noise and frees Rhaenyra's, but loses her in the crowd heading to the coronation in the dragon pit. We see a killer coronation scene interrupted by Princess I'm 100% That Dragon Rainies riding on top of Maylee's, wrecking anything and anyone in her path, and after a threatening stare down and roar from Maylee's, Rainies leaves the greens to their wet pants and flies out of King's Landing. Be sure to listen and pay close attention as you can elevate your maester's rank and win links and prizes by listening to the podcast and answering our trivia. Uh, Before we get into the episode, we're starting with our segment, For the Love of Lore, where I'll be going over anything involving history, culture, and customs in the World of Ice and Fire. The Council will then discuss the lore and how it affects the current episode. In today's lore, we're talking Flea Bottom. Uh, Flea Bottom is the poorest, most lawless slum in probably all of Westeros. Uh, It smells absolutely disgusting. It smells like pig shit, human shit, uh, wineskins, ales, pretty much anything you could think of. Um, It smells like that there. Uh, It consists of narrow, winding, maze-like alleyways, and it lies in a valley between Rainy's Hill and the Red Keep. It starts below the Street of Flower, where there's many bakeries um, at. Uh, The further you go down, the fouler it gets. Uh, The sewage from the Red Keep and Rainy's uh, and Rainey's Hill flows through Flea Bottom all the way down, uh, goes right through Tanner's Row and down to the bottom in Gin Alley. Uh, and then when it rains, the gutters actually f- uh, overflow in this human waste, making it absolutely delightful. Uh, it's home to cheap brothels, low-class ca- low inns, gambling dens, uh, animal tanners, pig-sized and tables add to, this, to the horrible smell, rat pits, and as we saw in the show, children fighting rings. Uh, the infamous Bowl of Brown is also very common down in uh, Flea Bottom. It's a stewed made by pot shops all around Flea Bottom. Uh, it's stewed year after year with new ingredients being added frequently. Uh, barley, onion, and carrot, apples, and whatever meat they can find are usually in the Bowl of Brown. Uh, this meat, yes, this meat includes dog, cat, pigeon, and potentially sometimes human meat. Um, some of the history of Flea Bottom, uh, it's not really known when Flea Bottom really became a thing, but it was first mentioned during King Jaehaerys' reign, which is kind of ironic considering Jaehaerys was all about infrastructure. Uh, it's, uh, the, the way that it actually, like, came to be was King's Landing did grow so fast and large that it just kind of happened, um, and the speed of which it grew kind of created this unorganized city planning and uh, Flea Bottom just had to be the place that kind of just like went to shit. Um, a lot of other places around King's Landing are at the bottom of hi- bottom of hills, just like Flea Bottom. But for some reason, they don't necessarily end up like a slum like Flea Bottom. Um, as we saw in the beginning of the show, Damon basically went on a crusade uh, against crime in Flea Bottom. Uh, he got the city watch into shape. Uh, after that, he hung out there pretty consistently. He enjoyed the gambling dens. He drank for free. Uh, was frequently at the brothels where he actually met Missaria, a.k.a. the White Worm. Uh, and as we saw, Aegon also frequented the area uh, consistently. Some other notable people from Flea Bottom, Rorge and Biter, uh, two of the prisoners with Jack and Hagar, uh, Carl Tanner from the show, uh, Gendry, Sir Duncan the Tall, and my personal favorite character, Sir Davos Seaworth, was uh, born in Flea Bottom. But uh, what do you all think of Flea Bottom and how it affected the episode? Morgan, we can start with you. 
I think Flea Bottom is such an interesting place and represents a lot of real world locations. Um, and it's just so representative of the human experience and how things can get so lawless and where people's decisions go when there's no one watching them. Right, that's what Flea Bottom really is, where people feel that not only are they not being watched, but they're not being valued or cared about. So what difference does it make what they do? Uh, and that's really what Flea Bottom is, is just den of refuse, a more wretched hive of scum and villainy you will never see. Um, but uh, how it played out in this episode, it was... It was central. Uh, obviously, we've seen that we've seen Flea Bottom so many times in the season already, right? We've seen uh, Damon try to tame it. We've seen various other people travel through it. We've seen Damon live in it, essentially. Um, and in this episode, we saw fights in it and the king to be Aegon literally hiding out there because where better to hide than where nobody really looks what about you Uzma the funny thing is whenever I hear the words flea bottom even though Gendry Davos and Sir Duncan that all are from flea bottom the names that pop into my head are Arya and Damon Targaryen. <laughs> because uh, Damon was literally named Lord Flea Bottom. <laughs> and Arya, was, when she uh, escaped uh, King's Landing and was not able to leave uh, the place, she had to live in Flea Bottom. And it was such a rough and poor place. She had to uh, hunt down and kill rats. And uh, were, were those birds or pigeons? She had to kill them and trade them for food. She didn't have any money and she had to <clears throat> live in that condition and survive. So just the fact that Arya survived living in uh, Flea Bottom uh, just shows how badass she is. <laughs> and uh, you can use the word badass with uh, Damon as well. <laughs> So anyone who can survive Flea Bottom is a badass. And um, as for Aegon, I agree. They, he went to the lowest of uh, low, low place, uh, the rat pits, where uh, children had their teeth and nails filed and they were uh, forced to fight each other. And uh, as we saw, his uh, bastard was also living in Flea Bottom. Do you think... Uh, a, a, Aegon was aware of uh, his bastard? Oh, I don't think he gives... I don't think he knows. I don't think he cares. Yeah, he don't... Uh, yeah, I don't think he gives a shit. And even if he does know, he'd be like, whatever, that's not my problem. <laughs> in the in the books, he uh, Aegon actually sits there and watches uh, the kids uh, fight each other. Uh, while he's uh, being pleasured and everything. So it just shows how sick Aegon is. And he is not fit to be king. What are your thoughts, Constance? I think Flea Bottom represents the 
the dregs of humanity in any big city, right? There's there's always going to be yeah. people that are unfortunately unable to get work or get a home or enjoy living in complete freedom and anonymity that comes with that kind of territory. And King's Landing, for all that we see the beauty and the glory of House Targaryen, you know, the, the palace and the splendor of the, the, the jousting and the dragon pit, there's that seedy underbelly to it, which represents everything that they don't want to admit happens and takes place in their glorious city. And at one point, I know that Flea Bottom gets cleared out by Baylor the Blessed, who kicks out all the prostitutes out of Flea Bottom in the Street of Silk. And that went over really well for the city's economy and overall general population because uh, he turned them out and their children. So any illegitimate sons or daughters that may be floating around got kicked out of King's Landing. But that doesn't happen until way off in the future from where we are right now in the storyline. But yeah, I, I think obviously that, it doesn't last. Yeah, that well, Baylor doesn't last. I mean, he's replaced by Aegon mm -hmm. the Unworthy, so uh, <laughs> it's an aptly named king. Um, but Flea Bottom does represent the worst of civilization, with the poor pits and the child fighting pits, and the stink and the sewage and. All of that. It's to contrast the, the glittering glory of the Targaryen dynasty. So that's me I take, Sam. All right. Well, yeah, that was our love and lore segment. Uh, moving on, we have the dragons in the details where Constance and Uzma will be going over small details you may have missed in the episode, as well as the fantastic costumes, props, and sets used. After you, Constance and Uzma. Okay, so the first scene we are going to, uh, at the very beginning, we are going to discuss the opening credits because there has been some changes in it. <clears throat> so before we discuss the changes, we see uh, act, uh, Aegon's, uh, Aegon the Conqueror's crown at the very beginning. And uh, now this crown also belongs to Aegon, Aegon the Second. <laughs> You can see uh, there is no ruby in it, but uh, you can see in the crown, which Aegon wears, there is a ruby, which is uh, exactly how it's described in the books. Aegon's crown had rubies in it. Then we see Viserys's crown, and as we saw in the episode ten trailer, Sir Arik will take this crown and give it will give it to Rhaenyra. You can see the sigils of House Targaryen. House Chelly, Baratheon, and Martel on King Viserys's crown. So this crown will be worn by Rhaenyra. And moving on to the changes in the opening credits, we see a seven-pointed star, which I think belongs to, which I think indicates Alicent, because now she has become like she is a follower of seven, deeply of religious. The seven. Yeah, yeah. That's a seven-pointed yeah. star on top of a tower with a beam of light. Just pointing that out. It's yeah, definitely Allison. You can see the high tower symbol there. Yeah, right. I can see is. the tower now. I I actually thought this was a crown or something. <laughs> I I can see the tower now. Yeah, so, so it's it, definitely Allison. Yeah, it's definitely Allison. And then we see four lines running through the uh, the tower from Allison. So uh, one stops halfway 
at this uh, sigil uh, which looks like either a cup or a tower i think it belongs to darren uh, who is at old town right now yeah. he is one of he is the youngest son of uh, alison hightower that and would make not, sense he will show up in season 2 what do you think it is is, is it a cup or a tower no it's the high tower it's just upside down um it's yeah. because they george has even said yes there's a fourth child but we haven't shown him he's in old town so it makes sense that they would have him with the marker of old town on his his little star so that's definitely going to so be fast uh, i tried to take a clear shot but <laughs> didn't get it it's still blurry <laughs> then we have uh, three uh, symbols for alison's children one is a spider and i think it shows helena because uh, you can see uh, the embroidery she's working on it's spider what do you think constance no it's definitely helena because if you look at the trail it shows the three blood which shows three siblings and then the two of them yeah. are merging back together and her symbol is a spider we've seen her playing with those in the past so that's mm-hmm. not surprising because if you look at this there's helena's spider and aegon's cup and the two of them are are mate are together with the blood flowing into each other which shows that they're married and going to produce children. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for uh, what I found really curious was uh, for Aegon's symbol there was a, a naked woman with her hands tied above her head uh, and she's uh, bent at the knee and uh, is I think it looks like a crown. What do you think this is? Uh it's a wine goblet. Okay. I think it's a wine goblet that I concur. Cuz his drinking and his whoring are two of his biggest qualities, so it makes sense that that would be his sigil in this representation. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. And uh, Safar is clearly uh, Aemon Targaryen because uh, he put he had put uh, sapphire in his eye that was lost. And uh, you can see uh, the sapphire when he takes off his eye patch in, in the episode 10 trailer you can see the sapphire now and then uh, from aegon and helena the blood flows in three di- directions uh, we can't see the third one but the two which goes uh, the one the two we can see i think it's the twins jaehaerys and jaehaera you can see two hands here and i think it's one two hands but we can only see one uh, in this what do you think constance oh i think that could be right uh i know that this could be, be if you look at the hands it looks like there's too many fingers and we know that jaharis was born with six fingers on his left hand and six toes on each foot so it's entirely possible that that's who those could represent So the one in the uh, on the left could be Jaehaerys and the one on the right could be Jaehaera or or the other way around. Yeah, it's really hard to say just because it that that's my guess. It's hard to say which is which okay. though. So uh, these are definitely Aegon and Helena's children. We saw them playing in uh, when Alicent and Otto went to visit Helena's room. and then there have been couple other uh, signs uh, and it wasn't very clear so i didn't uh, used all of those but this uh, one I, we have discussed in our previous episodes right uh, there was a bird sigil on it 
the last time you discussed this uh, symbol and uh, there's another one next to it uh, it's hard to tell what it is it kind of looks like a snake but it's really hard to tell what do you think constance could that be the seahorse the coraline the coraline seahorse the valarian seahorse i don't see it could these be the two the bastards that's possible I'm I'm thinking that because they're uh, obfuscated who the parentage is, that it could be the bastards, especially since some people theorize um, that Jace is uh, not a strong bastard, but rather a coal bastard. That's possible. Uh, we can see the blood flowing from above, so it could be a bastard. That might work. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to say what that shield represents. It's possible. So okay. what do we have next? Alright, so we're going to talk about the scroll at Aegon's coronation ceremony. It's uh, got some fascinating information here, so we're going to go through this kind of quick. A lot of this is prayers to the Seven to consecrate him. Uh, seven above, we commit you to this day, our good King Aegon, second of his name. Blah, blah, blah. Something about the father. So we've got the mother, warrior, smith, maiden. And then it, the crone, of course. But then it actually mentions the stranger. May the stranger refrain from visiting until the long and... Oh, we don't know the rest. This is rare. Normally, the prayers of the seven, the faith of the seven, you don't talk about the stranger. No, no, no. Uh, he's never mentioned. There's no songs, there's no, sh there's shrines, but they're not, like, well attended. The only ones that really worship the stranger are the silent sisters, the brides of the stranger who prepare the dead for burial. Uh, you can see them in the episodes of the ones that wear, like, the, the little back, sh the little flag on their back with the, the seven-pointed star on it that are attending to Viserys's body. Uh, but this is just surprising that they would actually mention the stranger and write it down. Uh, the next paragraph says, Seven above, we give thanks for your grace and mercy. We praise your wisdom, something, something, something. And look back in glad remembrance on the conquest of King Aegon, first of his name. Something, something, blood grunts into the soil, their swords make the throne. That's a fascinating line because it's talking about the people that were resistant to the conquest who obviously are dead and their swords are making up the, the massive iron throne at this time. The next paragraph comes to some really interesting stuff. Um, we remember on this day, the cataclysm visited pit upon the sept of blank. Uh, we ask the crone to shine her lamp on the shadows of treachery. We praise something, something the dragon pit in its place where today we celebrate the ascension of his grace. Now, the Dragon Pit used to be the Sept of Remembrance, which was on top of what was called Rhaenys's Hill. And that's the first Rhaenys, not our current, not Rainy, our current one. Uh, Megor the Cruel, who was king after Aegon, uh, burned it down with Balerion the Dread. And after he had the Red Keep finished, the prisoners built the giant stone stable to house all the dragons in. Now, according to George, the Dragon Pit could see 80,000 people. Which is why the High Towers wanted to herd in as many of the small folks as possible to witness the event. Uh, Grand Maester Munkin said that over 100,000 people attended and that their roars shook the walls. 
But Mushroom said the place is only half filled, so less than 50000 Um <laughs> The rest of it is just asking the seven to protect their servant, Lord of the realm, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, protector of the realm. May the father defend him. May the crone lift her lamp. May us be cleansed of our sins and defend us from our foes. Blah, blah. Standard religious ceremony stuff. Uh, the stuff about the dragon pit and the stuff about the stranger being mentioned are the most interesting out of all of this. So just just note that that was something that they would have probably said out loud, which may have been a little upsetting to people, talking about the stranger on an auspicious day, even if you're asking him not to show up. It's like, you don't mention the what devil. What I find interesting is uh, they mentioned shadows of treachery. Uh, who are they calling treacherous? Like Magor or the Faith Militant? Uh, probably Magor, because they're talking about the, the dragon pit in its place. So they're still yeah. talking about the set and the warrior brothers that were killed there. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, so that's that's the that's what I took out of this. I thought it was a really interesting. I wish we could read the rest of the scroll, obviously, to get the the dress to the text. But that's as much as they showed us in the scene. So that's but all we we'll got. Have, we'll have to make him roll it all the way. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> let me play with the prop. I want to read the rest of this. Uh, so what's next? Uh, then I noticed uh, Laris's cane. There was a, a, some kind of crack and uh, in it, uh, inside it, you can see a bug or a spider or something. It's like bugs creep me out. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, what do you think? What is this? Like, uh, is this a spider or a, or a, or an insect? Oh, I know we've seen it before. Uh, it's we've we've seen it before. I think somebody's called it a firefly. Firefly. Yeah. We can see uh yellow at the bottom. Yeah, it's got kind of a glowing, and he's wearing a pin with it in the other shots. We've seen it before. Uh, according to some of the websites on the internet, that they've confirmed that it is a firefly. Uh, okay. and it's a symbol that shows that. He, you know, kind of provides light in the darkness and and shines light on things as a confessor. Yeah, that's but, exactly how I would talk about Laris Strong, for sure. Yeah. 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 Definitely Shining. how a sociopath sees himself. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> also, Firefly, yeah. he set Hall on fire, you know. And he set the house on fire again, so that, yeah, that mm -hmm. also tracks... So yeah, it's probably the firefly that we keep seeing him as a symbol. I didn't notice that he only kills by fire. So. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's guess. pyromaniac with a foot fetish. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next thing we're going to take a look at is Allison's dress for this ep that she wears for the primordy of this episode. It's very Victorian in style. She's got a kind of a, a mid a mid range collar with a sheer uh, shoulder piece and then an applique that goes up the front and the back. She's got these little tiny peaks on her shoulders, which just don't make sense to me. Uh, but this dress is pretty simple in design, except for that applique that they've thrown on top of it. Which is, which is quite pretty, yeah. And she's got a, a golden belt at her waist with some chains and some discs. But for the most part, this dress just looks really... I don't know. I'm not impressed with the fashion in this latter half of the season. The first half I really liked, but the second half it just seems really kind of disappointing. 
This dress is weird. It is weird. It, it is something about it is unsettling. It's like it's got the little peaks on her shoulders that make zero sense because the sleeves are attached. It's not like they're separated from anything or it's not like they're attached to anything. They're just kind of there. And it's got that sheer overlay with the applique over it. It's just, I don't know. It, it just, maybe the detail work is really exquisite up close. You can see there's a lot of beads on it. But I'm just not impressed with do you the think green it, fashion sense. Do you think it's like a, like the dress she just picked? Because like, it was like, a, I, mean, I got to throw this on and go find Aegon real quick kind of thing. And that's why it kind of looks the way it does. Or is it just a weird dress? I think it's just weird. I mean, her fashion sense has really gone changed since she's really become her own person. And especially with the the whole faith of the seven thing, she's gotten really conservative in her styles. But this is just, it is a strange dress. So I, I don't know what they were thinking when they planned this one out. What I find is interesting is that she's wearing green the entire time. Oh, the morning yeah. colors for... Uh, for the red cape or for king's landing All is darker. black yeah and she ha- hasn't worn black yet nope that's because they're at war it's not about mourning <laughs> it's about fighting and the yeah. <laughs> the coronation isn't about mourning the dead viserys it's about celebrating the live aegon so she's wearing her usual colors of green for the ceremony with a french hood i don't know why but uh, what are we looking at now? Then we see carvings on the door of Dragonstone. And you can see uh, people uh, either uh, trying to hold a dragon or using spears uh, to like guide the dragons. I think these are depic- depicting the dragon keepers who uh, handle the dragons, who put them inside uh, the Dragonstone or take them out. But uh, in this, they are wearing armors instead of those racks we saw them wearing earlier. You can see they are wearing uh, armors and uh, dealing with dragons. It looks like yeah. It looks like it's the same image on either side. Like the left has one image, the right has a different image. Yeah, Uh, it's almost feel like uh, two or three people are holding, trying to hold a dragon with a rope or something. Yeah. And you got to remember, Magor's the one that built this, so it's probably people getting eaten by dragons. Yeah, it's possible. But in this, uh, you can see this person uh, is wearing uh, armor mm-hmm. and a helm, and they are also dealing with dragons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could definitely make out the dragons in the picture. You can see them a little more clearly when they try to close the door. And Otto had to yell, open that door for Melis to escape. Escape. <laughs> yeah, so they said that the doors the doors were wide enough, according to George, to ride 30 mounted men through. So I, I don't think it's quite as big as, as he envisioned, but it's still massive. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's pretty big. So that's all we have for our Dragon is in the Detail segment. Back to you, Sam. Awesome, thank you very much. Uh, and now for our main segment, Fire and Blood, where the whole council digs into some of the biggest moments that came up in the episode. Morgan, as usual, you have some questions for us. 
Of course I do. So, as per usual, what is your favorite character or moment? I'm going to start with Constance because she's drinking water. It's actually energy drinks. So, ah, that's <laughs> healthier. Yes. Um, my, my How dare you choice. talk back to the tyrant? How dare you? <laughs> I, I will pay now for my sin. twice. Yeah, I, I, I see. There she goes. Um, all right. So it's undisputable what the best moment is in this entire thing. And that is the Red Queen busting out the beast beneath the boards. Coming out. <laughs> we We knew it. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know it was coming because this isn't in the books. So it was a really awesome surprise for the episode nine shocker, like they always hit us with. Um, but that was great. The dragon was gorgeous. Rainice's armor was kick ass. I shared a picture of it on our Facebook. If you're not on a watch party of Ice and Fire at Facebook, uh, you can see some of the details on that one. We didn't do it for our dragons in the details section, but man, is that gorgeous. Uh, red scale with a uh, Targaryen crest on the on the shoulder blade. Oh, so good. Um, but that was my favorite moment. Uh, the fact that she had the restraints to not yell Dracarys and nuke everybody at once. That takes a lot of control. I mean, it could have it ended the war before it even begun. But then where was our story going to go? So she's instead going to... Uh, kick off the war in high fashion. Uh, so that's that's my moment of choice, and I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one because I saw Sam, you know, fist punch the air there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, why don't you why don't you show your Sam? Well, I mean, I'm not get, I'm just gonna go off of that one because you've said it, and it's obviously the best scene. Uh, my personal favorite was another rainy scene with her talking to Alicent. Uh, I really liked. I really liked it just because, like, Allison comes in all cocky, all confident, and she, like, is just, like, spewing off stuff. She's like, Rainey's, like, just come to my side. Like, you can have whatever you want. Which I also love that, like, everyone's basically telling the the Valerians, like, you can have whatever you want. Just join us because, like, it really shows, like, who has the power. But then Allison says to her, like, you should have been queen. And I feel like that just, like, completely opened up her plans and Rainey was Rainey's was like oh, okay so you actually kind of just like want the power here and just like completely turns it on Allison I thought it was just like so good like the dialogue was really good it was a nice little like kind of like standoff little sword fight by words type of thing so I really enjoyed that so yeah how about you Uzma okay I my favorite character was Rainis. <laughs> she, she was the MVP of this episode. <laughs> Obviously, it was Rainis. Uh, uh, I don't understand is why people are saying, uh, like, uh, calling her a bad person uh, for killing. Uh, yeah, she killed innocent, innocent people. But uh, I was like, what was she supposed to do? It it was the Greens who captured her. Was she not, uh, uh, like, uh, was, what was... She couldn't just have accepted being captured. She couldn't just have uh, like waited for the ceremony to be over so she could escape. She had to uh, get out of there if she wanted to warn Rainis because her family was also in danger if she was not supporting the Greens. So she I had mean, to get out of there. <laughs> I mean, she did have to get out of there, but she totally could have waited for the ceremony to end. No one was looking for her. Nobody knew she was there. She had the ability to wait. She chose not to. She wanted to make a statement. 
She killed lots and lots of people and chose not to kill her family, which I guess is admirable, but, like, seriously, those are the people you chose to spare? The people who were clearly the enemy when you kill all the people who were just innocent bystanders? I don't know. I agree with the people on the internet. I guess Lateral it's kind of... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like what we were talking about with Flea Bottom, right? Like, those are, like, the peasants. They don't care about them. They're just, like, they right. might as well be nothing. Yeah. That gives you insight into the Targaryen mindset is like, other Targaryens matter, but everybody else, that's not a dragon. And dragons don't, and anybody who's not a dragon doesn't matter. Even the term small folk, which is what they refer to their commoners and their peasants as, signifies their attitude towards them. They're they're small. That is, they they do not matter. They're inconsequential. Um, As opposed to commoners, which just means they're common. Or peasant, which means they toil. Uh, so the word small folk is even more demeaning of use than either of those other two terms. So that's that's kind of the attitude. And we've seen that attitude throughout all of Westeros. That the mm. only people that really matter is the royal dynasty, followed by the lords and ladies. Well, the lords. The ladies are kind of under the lords. I think the showrunners show are also paying attention to... Like, uh, when I was watching uh, season 8, and uh, Daenerys was only burning uh, her, uh, like, the people of King's Landing, but uh, sparing the lives of her own people, I was like, how can she, like, she's way up there, how can she distinguish between her people and the uh, other people, because they were, uh, from up above, they should all look like ants, Uh, and that's what uh, they were doing in this like the dragons uh, kill people whether uh, they are uh, from their own army or whether they are their own people or they are from enemy's side Uh, that's what we saw when uh, Caraxes landed in the sea stone battle that's what we saw in this like um, the people are like ants to the dragons and that's what uh, they don't care about it so it falls down to yes uh, dragon riders and i'm not saying rainus is not responsible but uh, who knows how long the ceremony would have gone on i don't know like uh, she was in a hurry i don't know what do you think morgan all right so i'm gonna say my favorite character of the episode was aemond Eamon just sitting there being like, I deserve this. I'm I'm a good person. My brother's a total shit and blah, blah, blah. And I'm a good person and I don't understand his sins and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just thinking, you remind me of Oliver Cromwell. Um, just sitting there being like, I am a Puritan. Everything I do is good. I might be sociopathic to a degree, but because I don't do things that are clearly sins... Everything I do is fine. I don't care if I kill people. That's fine. I can steal, murder, maim. That's fine. As long as I don't sleep with women, it's all fine. Just saying. That's what I got out of Aemon, and I loved it, because it's just so toxic. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I, I loved Aemon's whole attitude in this episode of just being like, I'm right, and everybody else is wrong. Even though I'm clearly not as right as I think I am. And yet still doing everything to get Aegon back, too. Right. Well, I mean, family first, right? Sure. But also, like, I think he was kind of hoping that things would go bad. Like, he was just like, Mm. I have to help you 
But if someone kills you along the way, I'd be okay with that. That's kind of the, the vibe I got. Is like, I'm going to mm. do what I need to do because I'm not going to get ousted as a kinslayer. Yeah. But yeah, you can still die. Speaking of Aemon, what are your thoughts on, uh, like, there are a lot of people saying that Aemon is exactly like Daemon. Like, no. In- <laughs> that was no. very, that was very emphatic. <laughs> There's, like, similarities, but I kind of, no. I kind of feel like that Daemon, Daemon is, like, almost, I feel like a weird fusion of Aegon and Aemon, you know, like, He'll go out and party a little bit, but he's also, like, this crazy good fighter that, like, everyone's intimidated by, which is, like, the Amon. I mean, those are the two, like, most superficial traits of those characters, and yes, I would say Damon embodies those most superficial traits, but as an actual personality, he's a very different person. So, like, yeah, if you're looking at it just from, like, ah, he's good at action and likes to wear cloaks sometimes, (laughs) sure. They're similar, but, like, I I don't see them as having much of a similar personality. I think that the old Damon had more in common with Aemon. Because the old Damon, before he became a husband and a father, was chaos. He would have made the strong speech at the feast just to see what <laughs> shit he could stir up. But he's matured. You know, I'm not exactly sure about that. So the the difference, I think, is... That Damon always had an objective. Even if he was creating chaos, he was doing it for an express purpose. And whether it played out badly for him or not didn't really matter to him. He had an objective and he was trying to get to it. Whereas Aemond is just pissed. He is just upset about everything. Everything is unfair. Damon was trying to create the fairness in the world. Aemond is rebelling against the unfairness of the world. And I think that's the core difference that makes me think that they are very much two different people. That even though they may have some similar tactics and superficially may seem like they're doing similar things, their motivations are very different. Because everything Damon did had a plan, had an objective, had an end goal, and whether it came out to fruition or not, he always acted toward his best interest. Aemond is not acting in his best interest. He does not give a shit. He is just nihilistic at this point. And Damon was never truly that nihilistic. I agree with Morrigan on this because Damon always had a sense of justice. Whatever he uh, he was doing, he he was doing the honorable thing most of the time. Like uh, he, yes, he uh, killed some people and it was cruel, but he was trying to do his job. He was trying to punish criminals. And uh, whatever Amon is doing, it's more like puns personal. Uh, and Damon loved his brother, but I don't get that from Amon. Like, he even literally wanted Aegon to run away so he could be king. Yeah, I I think Aemond is truly far more selfish. He'll do... I think the reason he does any good at all is just for appearance's sake because of, guess what, who his mother is. (laughs) He was raised that appearances matter more than actual justice. Yeah. And that's what he cares about, whereas... 
And he that's why he didn't make the strong speech in front of his grandfather. When the, when he had to be obedient and the good prince, he was. And the moment the king stepped out of the room, he said, fuck this shit. <laughs> that's not the way Damon operated. Damon would, would have said it right in front yeah. of his brother's face. And you can also see how Damon deals with uh, Otto. He never would have acted like Aemon. By the way, thank you for bringing this up because I've been wanting to talk about this so much. Because <laughs> everybody keeps saying that it's so similar. And I'm like, they're not. Sure, they look similar. <laughs> and the person I had a discussion with, uh, with mentioned uh, that uh, both were second sons and both uh, uh, supported their brother and... Uh, a lot of things from the books that we can't discuss here <laughs> but i don't see any similarity <laughs> yeah i think like i think again the similarities are all surface level and not actually who they are it's just situational stuff and very basic stuff that doesn't actually define them as people yeah well there's my rant next question <laughs> um <laughs> Tell me your thoughts on Otto's perspective, Sam. Uh, I mean, it's pretty clear that his perspective is just like, let's get Aegon on the throne. Let's uh, let let's get let's get me ruling this shit. I'm kind of over it. I think he like <laughs> didn't expect Allison to be like such a player. Like, I think uh, I think he keeps thinking that he's still pulling the strings, and Allison's like pretty much in it at this point. Whether or not, well. She's in it. Unfortunately, she's given up a lot more than Otto is, but she's in it. So I think that from his perspective, he's like, Aegon's going to get on that throne and I'm going to be running shit. When really, I think that this episode was like, oh, maybe I won't be running shit as much as I thought I was. But he's, de I mean, he's he's like in full-blown playing it now, though. Like you saw him like, you know, pulling the old Tywin, writing letters to everybody in the realm, getting his uh, people together. He already had the basically all the small council ready to go. So he was like, I, but I do think that in his eyes, when the episode started, he was like, oh, I'm about to rule shit. And then as but by the end of the episode, he's like, okay, Allison actually is going to be like probably fighting with me a lot. So, um, yeah, Morgan, what'd you think? I think, yeah, I think he, yes, he's doing all this machinations and he wants to be in charge. And he can, ba he basically thinks that he can control his grandson. But I think what he doesn't, he doesn't realize that he's already created someone to do that for him in his own daughter. Um, and he hasn't actually recognized that his daughter is her own person until now. And I think he's just kind of sitting back in abject terror at his own creation, being like, shit, I shouldn't have put these bodies together and made a living being out of them with science. Um, yeah, bad Frankenstein. Um, and he's just like, well, I'm gonna have to figure out a way to make this work. Yeah, I think he's just lost yeah his like he spends the entire bad. episode looking he's like i have plans and then he spends the entire episode looking confused and distraught <laughs> yeah. and all he has to say for it is like wow you look like your mother it's like okay <laughs> so you got nothing yeah. <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, he's literally like, well, I still think you're hot. That's what I got out of that. We already have enough incest in this show. We don't need any more. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, what like, was he's like? What was the point of that other than like to psychologically <laughs> dig at her? Like, I'm still your yeah. dad. You could even see Allison's eye roll though when he said that. Like he was like, "You look so much you like your mom," hear. and Allison's eyes just like f- like rolled in the back of her brain. You she could was hear not it. Having yeah. it. <laughs> All right. Uh, what about you, Uzma? From this episode, I got the feeling that uh, Otto didn't want to uh, crown Aegon right away. He wanted to wait. He knew that if they crowned Aegon immediately and Rhaenyra was alive, uh, half the kingdom will re- would rebel against them. So uh, I think uh, Otto wanted to wait until uh, they have uh, Rhaenyra and uh, her family killed before crowning Aegon. And that's where Alison took matters into an, her own hand and she forced it that yes, um, Aegon will be crowned tomorrow. I have Aegon now and you will do as I say. And that's when he agrees to it. But why? The, although he is claiming that he is doing for the good of the realm to prevent war. But uh, it's pretty obvious that he is doing it for power. He has uh, been doing everything from the very beginning for power. He was the one who had Viserys. Uh, who manipulated Viserys to send a demon away. And he was the one who insisted that Rhaenyra should be named heir. Um, and now that Rhaenyra is named heir, now he wants his own grandson to be the king. So it's pre- pretty obvious what his thoughts <laughs> were in this. What do you think, Constance? Well, it's clear that no matter what happened, whether or not Viserys said what he, Alicent thought he said, that... He, Otto was going to make his grandson king. Now he has legitimacy because he has the queen's word that the king changed his mind at the last minute. And so that just justified everything that he was illegally planning, like Lord Beesbury said, uh, that they had been plotting this treason against the rightful heir to the crown for God knows how long. Right. I mean, because they already had a plan in place. It's like, okay, he's dead. Right. Plan A. Let's go. Let's roll. I think he would have crowned Aegon as soon as he could to try to... Uh, it's kind of like why they, they hasten the coronation to legitimate, legitimize Aegon's rule. Like the, oh, too late. Already had the ceremony. Already witnessed by thousand, you know, 180,000 small folk. Can't go back. It's been done. It's kind of like, you know, saying that the election is stolen and that you've won before the results are even counted. If you know what I mean. Uh, oh snap yeah i went (laughs) (laughs) um but the whole thing is that Otto was going to do this no matter what happened no matter what viserys wanted this was his plan all along and now he just he's like the gods have smiled upon me i have legitimacy now i'm gonna go forward with it and this just makes my life that much easier yeah, he even says that like in his speech, like at the coronation, he's like, it's a really sad day the king died, but it's also a great day because he said Aegon should be king. Woo, yeah, Aegon. <laughs> so silly. I have to point out on this subject that when his daughter, Allison, is telling him the king said this, he's just looking at her like, really? <laughs> really? 
The king said that? Sure. And then like 10 minutes later, he's like, everybody, the king said this. <laughs> Just saying. It benefited him. Of course he was going to shout it at the bar. <laughs> oh, did he? Oh, did he really? Okay, yeah, sure, sure. Wink, 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 wink. <laughs> All right, great. That's exactly what I needed to hear. Let's roll. Yeah, go tell that to yeah. everybody now. Cool, yeah. Oh, no, totally. Sure, yeah. <laughs> He's like, my daughter's nuts and it benefits me. Yay. <laughs> He's losing his mind, and I'm reaping all the benefits. <laughs> There's no way this can end poorly. <laughs> all right. Speaking of Alicent, the next question is, tell me your thoughts on Alicent's perspectives and thoughts in this episode. Oof. I'm going to say Constance. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ignore the elephant in the room and circumvent around a certain thought process because God, but, um, I think she's thinking that her, everything that Otto has told her is going to happen unless she can get there first. Otto has said, Rhaenyra is going to kill your kids. Otto has said that your life will be in jeopardy. Otto has said that, you know, Rhaenyra is not going to leave the throne unchallenged. You're going to have to do something. And so she does do something. You know, she moves first to to get Aegon conquer, you know, Aegon the second crowned. So what she wanted to do was ensure that she could still honor Viserys' wishes for his daughter to live and his grandchildren to live. But at the same time, secure her son as ruler. So I think that she was acting out of fear and love and a little bit of sadness maybe because she did care for Viserys uh, you know she did call him you know her, her, her love and she did have tenderness towards him but I think that most of her motivation was self-preservation and preservation of her dynasty so Uzma uh, what do you think about Alicent I think the reason she's insisting, besides her friendship with Rhaenyra, which was renewed in the fe- during the feast, uh, I think she wants to keep a sense of justice. Like, uh, she wants to make herself feel good, like, I'm doing the right, right thing. She does a lot of b- bad things. She agreed to the murder of Miss Arya, and um, there were a lot of other people besides Miss Arya were living in that building. So a lot of innocent lives would have been lost both in Harrenhal and in this. So she knows she is doing something wrong. But she also wants to keep a sense of she like she is right. And that's why uh, she is uh, doing things where she can say, yes, I did the right thing. And that's what she t- tried to tell uh, Aegon, that you must not rule through cruelty and everything. So, I don't think uh, Alicent is as good as she is pretending to be, but she tries, at least tries to do the right thing, and that's why she fought with uh, Otto to uh, take control of the situation. But she is, like Morrigan said, she still did what Otto wanted. (laughs) What do you think, Sam? I think like you you were saying with like with like the the love and and the fear like I definitely think it's out of fear like she looks stressed out this whole time it's obviously a pretty stressful situation no matter what's happening 
but I, it's definitely out of like fear mostly i think one she's afraid of the fact that like aegon was named king i think she's afraid of people like even believing her and then you know when she goes to the small council and they're like yeah we're gonna kill rhaenyra she's like what the fuck like so i think it's definitely like mostly like the entire time she's just like bouncing back and forth trying to figure like get all her ducks in a row She's absolutely terrified. It's why she goes and talks to Rainey's, I think, because Rainey's is, you know, one of the more level-headed people who's not just trying to murder the actual heir to the kingdom. So, like, I think it's, like, you know, I, I think that she's, like, just trying to get everything sorted out. I think that when she finally, like, finds Aegon and beats Otto to him, I think that's almost, like, a very calming thing for her. You know, she rolls in and talks to Otto and really puts him in his place. So, like, I think that, like, that entire time she's just, like, freaking out. Because also, like you were saying, like, if Otto would have gotten a hold of Aegon, who would who knows what he would have actually done to him. So, yeah. Morgan, what about you? First of all, I'm going to welcome Solar, who has joined us. Hello, Woo! Solar. Uh, Hello. And uh, so, Solar, just so you know, the question that we are talking about is, what is Allison's perspective and thoughts in this episode? Uh, so, if you'd like, once I give my answer, you can go ahead and answer. If not, we can move on to the next one. But, for my answer, I'm just gonna start with the fact that Allison, in this episode, really is just realizing it's all real. Right? Like, she has been plotting and scheming this whole time. And thinking, oh, I can find a way to make everything work in my favor. And everything will end the way I want it to. And then she's realizing just about now, oh, fuck. I don't actually have as much control as I think I do. There's no way for this to end the way I want it to. And everybody else knows it. And they're all acting and I don't have time to process. And I need to sit here and think while they're talking about murdering my childhood crush. I mean, friend. Um, and I am having some feelings right now. I mean, her. is having some feelings right now. And I don't have time. And everybody's moving forward. And everything's moving too fast. And I need everything to stop. And that's just kind of where I saw Allison in this episode. She's, she's just panicking. She's pulling back. Everything is like, no, 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 that's a step too far. No, 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 that's a step too far. No, 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 that's a step too far. When she'd already put all of this in motion, everything that's happening is exactly what she had been planning for. But now it's real. Did you want to go ahead and uh, add your two cents, Solar? <clears throat> two cents? I think I got a nickel on this one um oh good oh yeah um first off i want to say hello everyone um as far as allison's perspective what i have to say on this one is i have never felt more for allison hightower than i have in this episode okay in this episode um I got to see what I saw was, or what I'm interpreting as more of the real her than anything, because she's been moved around, she's been floundering back and forth, um, and in this one, I see the character stuck with, 
okay, this new thing just dropped into my lap. Now I want to do right by the kingdom, by my husband, by our traditions. Like she is really trying to do what she believes to be the right thing in this one. You know, um, the deathbed misunderstanding of his majesty, his grace. I can't shut my mouth when I'm high. Um, just threw her into a tailspin. And now that she's there, she's like, okay. So he changed his mind. This is what he's going to do. This is what we're going to do. And then she goes into the small council and they're like, oh, we were going to do this whether or not he changed his mind. But I'm glad you're on board. And she's like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> don't hold up. <laughs> like, I've been running this kingdom and I'm the queen. And am I to understand that everybody has just been plotting to depose Rhaenyra in the first place? They're like, uh, yeah, where you been? You know? And she's like, okay, I can't stop that train, but can I do this with the minimum amount of bloodshed? And then she saw with her own eyes how much of a monster her father, fuck that guy, absolutely was. You know, I mean, it's one thing to say, all right, we have this thing going. Let's have some political discourse. Let's let's debate this. But if guns existed, the High Lords would have had them to their heads saying, so we making my grandson the king or are you going to or are you going to take a double tap? So, you know, um, hand up or double tap down. And she sees this and she's like, whoa, uh, uh, like I know my dad was cold, but I didn't know he was evil, but he's still my dad. And the race to get the boy. I found very interesting because she's kind of going, if he gets his hands on my son to be king, he's going to turn my son into a bigger monster and fuck up than he already is. Um, but maybe I can hold some sway and, and help my son be, if not a good king, a better king. <laughs> you know, so I saw a lot of her husband rubbing off on her in this episode where she's trying to do what she believes is right with as little bloodshed and as little conflict as possible. While I'm not going to say finally understanding, but I am with you, Morgan, in the sense of she's seeing exactly how large the fangs are in the pit of vipers that she's been in for the first time. Like, really for the first time, you know? Um... And with her feeling that way or seeing all that um, from her father hanging the dude that tried to leave um, and having the king's guard like take um, take everybody who wouldn't bow to Aegon to Mr. Club um, Clubfoot foot fetish. Let's call him Mr. Tarantino um, touching himself during the conversation. She's like, I'm in a messed up place here. And now I've got to protect my children. So I really, really felt for her on this one. And the clarity of the danger that everything posed um, really hit her square in the face. Not through anyone's words, but by everyone's actions. Because up until this point, what we've seen from Alison Hightower is she believes what everybody tells her. <laughs> 
you know, her dad says, you are the danger, you're this, there's no way Rhaenyra can do her thing without killing your children, do you want your children dead? And she goes, oh, why would my father lie? And then she believes the High King, and I mean, the king who is high on milk of the poppy. Oh, well, why would he lie? Um, she believes the children. No, he cut my eye and I didn't instigate anything. Oh, why wouldn't my kids do this? Like, she's always believed everything that everyone's told her. But now she's seeing what kind of people have been telling her stuff and trying to come to terms with the lies and try and keep as many people alive as possible. So... Um, I, I definitely see her more torn in every direction in this episode than I have before, because before it's been with words and now it's been with consequences. And I really think this is the first time, if not in the character's life, um, definitely within the story that she actually has to face real honest to goodness consequences for the choices that others made and the actions that they did or didn't take. So that, that's what I see, you know, the, yeah, this is real. There are consequences and this may not end well for a lot of people. So that, that's what I see on her. Uh, next, we have our Raven's Eye segment where Solar will be talking about the cinematography and directorial choices made and how they affected the episode. To you, Solar. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I am Solar Gray, the cinematic sorcerer, and welcome to the Raven's Eye. Now, in this episode, I had a hard time choosing. I really, really did. Because there were two scenes that really stood out. Um, the first scene um, was Princess uh, Nisi getting, what's the term I'm looking for, swept away by the crowd to the new coronation. But I decided not to go with that one this time. And I decided to go for what I call a house divided. And this is the action scene where um, Aegon is finally found. And there are two simultaneous fights happening. And there's a really big theme that's happening with these fights. And that is a division of brothers. Um, we've got the fight between Sir finally made up his mind what he's going to do. And, um, and his brother in the Kingsguard, Eric. While Eric and Arik are at odds because one is siding with um, loyalty to their position while the other one is trying to do what's right. And then, of course, there's the fight between the two um, High um, Hygarian brothers. <laughs> um, and the way that these scene, this scene was really filmed, I thought it was very brilliant for the choreography specifically to be in an environment that had two sets of staircases. There's a lot of division in the frameworks, okay? We have the opening shot where um, they bring Aegon out of the Sept, and then, of course, we get the Kingsguard going in two directions, the brothers are going in two directions. It's almost like each side chose a stairway while Arik, uh, while, uh, okay, they're named Eric and Arik. Okay, so Eric and Arik. Yeah, um, helpful. So let's just say Ricky is standing at the top of the stairs going, well, we're going to see how this one plays out, um, which was really, really um, visually symbolic 
because whenever you see twins on film, okay, every time you see twins on film, you very rarely get to see juxtaposition of personalities. Most of the time, twins do the whole duplicate thing, you know, and I'm not just talking about the Olsons. Like, anytime you see um, twins in cinema, be it Bioshock Infinite or... um, um, even the double mint twins from back in the eighties. Yes, I'm dating myself, but you know, I can afford to feed me. Um, twins tend to always act just alike. So when they take different sides, you can, it's almost a visual sense of one person divided into two, which is very symbolic of the theme of not just this episode, but of the story in general. Um, and then the second layer of division between family is, of course, between the two perspectives of the Kingsguard, <laughs> where we've got um, Sir Bay of more and more angry, um, listening to Alicent and trying to bring the woman's son back to her versus um, Ricky, too, let's call him Mr. Martin, who's living La Vida Loca trying to do what the what the hand of the king is saying since the hand has the authority of the king living or dead. And um, again, you get very much a division between the brothers of the white cloaks and the twins who also happen to have white cloaks. <laughs> and of course, the major, major fight as they're cutting back and forth and back and forth are between Aegon and Aemon, <laughs> where I have to say, I have never had more respect for Aemon in this show, <laughs> like ever, um, specifically with him going, no, I'm not it. I'm not that guy. This is not a job I'm qualified for. And his brother, who is fighting him to take him home, is going, dude, I know, but what are we going to do? You know? Um yeah, I'm close to calling him Prince Smirky because he's got like some weird smirk all the time. It's like he lost his eye and got a funny facial expression. But um, yeah, the way that the scene is framed up and shot, um, even with the quick cuts, we're always seeing the pairs, except for when the camera cuts to Ricky, who's just kind of watching this whole thing going... There's my job and there's what's right, but my job is also doing what's right and doing what I'm told. And oh, God, I can't believe he's been in the fighting pits with the children. Maybe this guy isn't the one for the job. I'm not the one for the job. Okay, cool, but I'm under orders to give you the job. So um, the quick cuts gave a sense of chaoticness because, of course, it's multiple fight scenes happening in one place. So the claustrophobia and the confusion of where the camera's pointing means a lot. But every single frame up of each fight showed a house divided. So I thought that was very, very interesting on this one. Um, What are your thoughts? I'm really interested to hear what uh, Uzma has to say about this one. I agree. Uh, There are conflicts between brothers and you can see their motives, uh, their sense of justice and everything very different. Like uh, for Are- Sir Eric and Arik, Sir Arik is the one who has a sen- strong sense of justice. He wants to, he sees uh, Aegon as this 
cruel person who is watching kids fight in the rat pits and everything he doesn't think that uh, Aegon should be king and he is trying to convince his brother of that but his brother sir eric is has a strong sense of duty he thinks uh, that uh, he has sworn vows uh, to follow the, uh, the the orders to protect the prince so he thinks his doing his duty is more important whereas sir arik thinks that uh, justice and honor is more important uh, similarly with uh, aegon and aemond we also see conflicts uh, like aegon has no sense of responsibility he just does whatever he wants whereas with aemond he is he is all about his duty and responsibility it's very clear that he wants aegon to run away it's very clear that aemond wants to be king himself he is doing everything uh, that should be done by a proper king like jace he was also learning things uh, to prepare to be king but he still uh, brings uh, aegon back because this is what is interested to him and this is what is his duty as for cole and eric as you mentioned they also for have different goals for uh, sir eric i think it's more about uh, again his sense of duty that now that the king is dead uh, he has to follow the orders of the hand whereas with Al uh, cole it's more personal uh, like he has uh, alicent mentions Cole's feelings for her. Uh, I think he is doing it for personal reasons. What do you guys think? Do you think there's something going on between Alicent or and Cole? Do you think Cole has uh like feelings for Alicent? What do you guys think? Seriously, I think um, Kristen Cole to Alicent is the proto Jorah Mormont. <laughs> I think <laughs> he has feelings that will go nowhere. <laughs> What about you, uh, Sam? I don't know. I think he's kind of done with the whole princesses, queens thing. <laughs> I think he, like, I think he got burned, burned and he's out. like, yeah. I think now, I don't know. I, I don't really know what's going on with Sir Not So Noble now. I think he kind of <laughs> is just over the whole thing. Like, I think he's kind of just like, I'm just going to go on this side. I kind of hate Rhaenyra because I'm an incel and I'm just going to do whatever, I guess. Like, I think that, I don't know. I think that. If he does have feelings for for Allison, I feel like that would be weird as well. Just because, like, I don't know. I feel like he's barking up the wrong tree there, too. Like, it would make no sense for him to, like, have feelings for her. Because that would just, like, contradict the entire reason that he hates Rainier at the same time. So, I, I think, if anything, I think he's just, like, kind of just rolling with it now. I think he's, like, thrown out the whole Kingsguard thing. He's just, like, I'm on Team Green. I'm just going for it. I think that's his mindset. Constance? But she did mention uh, oh. your uh, uh, like your feelings for me or something. So she knows uh, something is there and she's using it for her benefit, I think. What do you think, Constance? I think in this case, I know we're getting off the topic of the cinematography, but um, I think that in this case, he's she is using his sense of honor, right? The code of chivalry requires that you treat women a certain way with honor and respect especially according to their 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 gender and their station and as the queen she is accorded a higher level of respect and uh authority so i think that she's playing off of that 
you know, you were, your, your sense of honor, your sense of duty is very important to you, your sense of chivalry as a knight. So therefore you must do these things for me because as your queen, it's expected of you to treat me this way. So I think she's manipulating him, even if she's not intentionally doing it, which she probably is, but I think that's the case mm -hmm. with, with Sir Christian. Um, but to Solar's point about the cinematography, uh, I did see that this was a very good way to show the divide. Having the two layers of fight, the fight between the Kingsguard, between the two members of the Kingsguard over which side gets to bring him in, who's, who's on the side of the hand, who's on the side of the queen. And then there's the further division of the Kingsguard as who's on the side of Rhaenyra. Uh, so it's actually more of a three-way split. Like, are they listening to the queen, the hand, or the princess? The, the queen to be and uh, the other thing that i noticed uh, just more from a design perspective is the musical underscoring of this episode we heard pianos and when <laughs> when ramen vijwadi plays the piano it means shit's gonna happen and you could, it just it, it's true i mean he does it like light of the seven yeah and you know the and the reigns of Castamere, we just have that one lone instrument that kind of underscores it that's not your normal musical cue it creates a sense of unease and it sets the tone for shit's gonna go down so that's another one of those beautiful you know elements of craft that goes into this show is the the music and it really stood out to me and i noticed it at the beginning of the episode i'm like oh this is different why is this different <laughs> what's gonna happen and then of course we had our, our explosive ending at the you know with the dragon so not explosive uh, enough <laughs> yeah not not enough dracaris going on there <laughs> in, in the opinion of many yeah the one word uh, that could have ended all of this ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, well a toast to words never spoken in another season of television <laughs> <laughs> Would have gone against the canon. And Sam, what are your um yeah, what what do you really think about that division and the way that it was shown, especially since I know you're an action guy? Oh yeah, I love these scenes. I thought it was great. I uh I really I do I think if there's one thing we can give credit to Aegon for, it's the fact that he doesn't think he should be king. So like <laughs> he at least is very aware of that fact. And the fact that, like, Eamon's like, yeah, I fucking know, but we gotta go. Mom <laughs> wants you. Like, so I think that that was, like, kind of cool to see that they were weirdly on the same side while fighting each other. They're like, yeah, neither of us want this, and I would love to put you on a boat to Pentos or wherever, but, like, we gotta go. Um, I also really love that the Cargiles, 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 either way, I love how they are, like, it like actually in the forefront of this. Like, I feel like when I read the story, they always kind of felt like a background story. Mm. So like, I kind of like how in the show they're like really, really at the forefront. And like, their like argument is like so brotherly, like, yes, it's about royalty and it's about like what, what is going on, but their argument and the way they act with each other. Cause I mean, they're obviously brothers in real life, but I love that. Like, it was like, I like I I can picture me arguing with my brother that way. It was like so good how we like went off each other. And then when Eric was just like, "I'm out, bye," <laughs> like, "All right, <laughs> see you next episode." Okay, so but no, I I thought that whole scene was just like so good. I thought it was so perfect. Like Constance said, the music was perfect. I like how it was like you know by the sept kind of thing. Like it was also like this like religious ass. It was so good. I loved every part of it. 
Well, very awesome. And that has been our segment called The Raven's Eye. Uh, let us know what you guys think. And, of course, our Facebook group and all those places that you get a hold of us. And what did you see when you took a look at this scene? What did you feel? What popped out? If you were to watch it again really quickly and turn away, what's the first thing you see? But with that, I'm Solar Gray, the Cinematic Sorcerer, and back to you, Sam. Thank you, Solar. And for our final segment, we have Fans of the Dragon, where Uzma and Constance will give us trivia, polls about the world of ice and fire, and questions and comments from you, the listeners. All you, Uzma and Constance. Okay, as usual, we'll start with our trivia for this episode. Who is it that Solar compares... Laris Strong too. Famous person, real easy. Uh, just think of think of what Laris is into, and then you you'll have your answer. Uh, <laughs> but that's it for this week's trivia question. So go ahead and uh, send in your answers to us: Facebook, email, Twitter, whatever. There's some beautiful bookmarks up for grabs if you can answer five questions correct and get your Maester's chain growing. So do that, please. Get them out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> Uzma, what do we have for our poll? I know we've got some exciting stuff in our polls this week. Okay, so the poll for this week is, after episode 9, who do you think would be the best ruler? And on YouTube, with uh, 68 votes, we have Rhaenyra Targaryen leading with 46% votes. And it's what I really found funny was the person who got the least votes was actually the person that was crowned as king in the episode. <laughs> well, even he knows he'd be bad at the that's job. That's politics. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he would. He would have even. He wouldn't have even voted for himself in this poll. It would have been like, no, I'm not gonna pick that. I'm not gonna pick that. Yeah, guy. I'm gonna vote for Amon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually surprised that Prince Nisi would wasn't on the poll because she would have been my answer. Yeah, oh, someone yeah. added uh, that option on Facebook. So we had uh, 47 votes for Pri uh, Princess Rhaenys and 166 votes for Rhaenyra Targaryen on Facebook. And uh, Princess Rhaenys was added later by Leslie. So we have, but still Rhaenyra is winning with 63% votes and uh, Rhaenys got the second highest votes by 18% votes. And nobody voted for Aegon. <laughs> oh, God, no. Zero percent. <laughs> oh, that would have been wow. like giving Damon the throne when Viserys took it. It's just, yeah, not not a good yeah, call. Yeah, no. Face no. Facebook is not a fan of Aegon. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. Even Viserys didn't, didn't choose Aegon. <laughs> and uh, on Twitter, we have... By uh, winning by 65.9%, Rhaenyra Targaryen. And once again, <laughs> the person who got the least votes was Aegon Targaryen by 4.5%. So what are your thoughts? Who do you think is the best ruler? Who would be the best ruler? Uh, Solar? Oh, honestly, yeah. I'm all about Princess Rhaenys. I really am. Um, one, she's got the temperament. <laughs> 
Two, she's lost enough to understand the cost of the job. And three, she should have had it in the first place. And I'm not saying that because I look like her husband. I'm saying that because given the choices of everyone that we've seen, she has been the one that's kept the most level head, has understood the game most, and has the deepest understanding of the politics of the area. So much that when she didn't get the job, she's like, well, guess I'll take up knitting. You know, so honestly, I, I think she would be number one. What if only you, she practiced Sam? her high Valerian. <laughs> yeah. I think she knows it, but doesn't use it because she doesn't have anyone to talk to with high, high <laughs> Valerian. Well, she only needed one word. <laughs> it's a word I know. I mean, geez. <laughs> Sam? Uh, so I, I voted for Eamon <laughs> only because I was like, I didn't want to do it too easy and just like pick Rhaenyra or pick Damon. I was like, I'm going to pick a Eamon just, just for discussion purposes. Cause while he is a sociopath, I do kind of think he might have, I, I, I do think he could be a good King. I like, I think that like he would at least be um like at court he'd at least be making decisions he'd be, at least be doing things like he said he reads the books you know he's a good warrior we've already seen that he has the best drag or well the biggest dragon i won't say best but biggest and oldest dragon which you know brownie points so like i do think that there are a lot of things that he make him a good king I could also see, though, him just going straight Magor the Cruel and being, like, the absolute worst. So, like, I voted yeah. for him just because he's got some good qualities, and I just wanted to kind of discuss it at the same time. So, Constance? Uh, Rhaenyra. She's been raised with the expectation to rule. She's demonstrated that she understands politics, even if she doesn't necessarily like them. She knows how to read a room and when to leave it. And uh, I think she would have made she she should have been queen. She should have been crowned instead of Aegon. But that's what's gonna happen. We're gonna see that, aren't we? Next episode. Here yeah. it comes. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I couldn't vote. Um, I I couldn't vote Aemon just because he looks too much like the lead singer of My Chemical Romance. <laughs> <laughs> Oh I'm like, man! You know, yeah, you got I mean, problems with My Chemical Romance? I'm just saying, you know, for a band that's <laughs> a band that's known to be the soundtrack to Cutters, The Iron Throne is not the best place. <laughs> what What is the quote? You haven't heard the Black Parade until you've heard it in the original High Valarian. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's great! Is that gonna be? Is the Black Parade gonna be Rainier's theme song? Rolling into King's Landing. <laughs> no, that would have required Viserys to actually take her somewhere, and he could barely take her across the throne room. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I get a feeling that one of the listeners is going to be writing that song within the next two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can learn High Valerian on Duolingo, just so you're aware. That's if true. You really want to go for it. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> But uh, so I think that's it for trivia, right? Yeah. Okay. So we're because 
we're we're hitting up the point where if we talk any more about the different dragons, we're gonna run into spoilers, right? We've gone over all the dragons we can, as spoiler free as we can. So who's that Dragimon is going to be a retired segment. There's two left. They both belong to Daenerys. You already know all about them. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm we're gonna retire the who's that Dragimon segment. What we're gonna present to you going forward is a new segment. Same thing, just with a shiny new coat of paint. Are we ready for it? Yeah. One, two, three. Most, Most valuable, valuable dragon. I <laughs> was actually not bad because only Sam and I said it. <laughs> so obviously our MVD for this episode is Melis. There's no question. She's not only the only dragon we saw in the entire episode, but she kind of owned the room, literally. Uh, she was called the... The Red Queen, the mound of Queen Rhaenys, the queen that never was. She was a mother of dragons, as she was uh, thought to have laid the clutches of some of the last two dragons of the era. She was very old, one of the second generation that came over after the conquest, and was almost as large as Beleriand the Black Dread, and almost as fast as Caraxes. She's described as being crimson, with a pink membrane to her wings, although I don't think we really saw too much of that in the episode. Her crest, horns, and claws, according to the books, were copper, but in the episode we could see that she's got a frilled crest of bone horns surrounding her head, like a proper fit for a queen. Metal. And you can see that here. Yeah, just so badass. Uh, and she made her home on Driftmark, but she is housed in the dragon pit whenever Rhaenys would visit King's Landing. When King Viserys dies and the queens make their power play, Rhaenys refused to leave King's Landing without Malus, even at risk to her life. The Grain's love of drama is almost their undoing, as Rhaenys is able to slip unnoticed into the dragon's chambers below the dragon pit, put on her badass bitch queen armor, and free the dragon from its fetters. But the larger entryways to the dragon pit have all been covered up to allow the small folk to sit to gather in mass, so she has to break herself free and the dragon coming out from the pit, becoming the beast against the boards, as Helena referred to. Her explosive escape kills hundreds of small folk bystanders, unfortunately, that are caught being under the opening, powerful beat of a tail, bleed of a wing. Uh, it's only through Rhaenys' self-control that the Greens survive, and all it would have taken was one little Dracarys, and they <laughs> all would have burned. Instead, she escapes a dragon pit and flies off to Dragonstone to warn Rhaenyra of the battle for the Iron Throne that's yet to come. And thus, as the dance of dragons begin with the flight of Melis the Red Queen, our most valuable dragon for this episode. And that's it for fans of the dragon. Sam, take us out. Awesome. Thank you very much. That is our episode. Follow us on Facebook at AWPOIAF and Twitter at Ice and Fire Party and email us at watchpartyoficeandfire at gmail.com. If you're watching on YouTube, feel free to comment below. Massive thank you to our producer and our lord of editing, Jordan Reynolds, for editing and putting the episode together. Uh, Season one of Rings of Power is over, and there's plenty to discuss, so check out our friends over at Watch Party Lord of the Rings, who have all the lore and discussion you could need. Uh, We also have our pals over at Watch Party Wheel of Time with anything and everything you need to know about that universe and series. This has been a production of the Watch Party Network. Thank you so, 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 so much for joining us. We are your hosts, Solar. Not today. Constance. Fly high, fly far. Uzma. Willem Ogulis. Morgan, who's not with us right now. And myself, Sam. All hail Queen Rainey's La Meshi Reign. <laughs>